0: there is such a romanticism with Indigenous fire use. So people like to hear about it, like agencies like to say that they support it. But when it actually comes to Indigenous people deciding where and when to drop the match and actually doing it, there's a huge disconnect there. So, you know, we really see, yeah, so we we really see support, like you'll see agencies all the time saying we, we support Indigenous use of fire. But Indigenous people I think that that I've worked with really want to be the ones that are leading that so they want to be the ones who are you know using their knowledge of their local landscape to be able to just go out look in their environment um, about you know what needs to be burned and then go from local cues on when it needs to be burned they don't want to be you know filling out a rigorous like burn plan that is based on you know uh, kind of like dominant or Western science methods that our our communities don't use. But, you know, they know they know those things, but in a different way.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with them in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Montai. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to... Say thank you to everyone who came by the uh, Life of Fire podcast booth at the International Association of Wildland Fire Conference in Pasadena last week. It was super cool to meet a few of the guests that we've had on in the past and also some listeners and some folks who had really great things to say about the podcast. So thank you if you're listening and you were there and you were able to swing by the booth and say hi. I really appreciated it. After two years of doing this project very much alone in my house at a desk... Uh, talking into a mic. It was really great to meet people in person and finally kind of put some faces to names that I've talked with online and emailed for years in some cases. So it was really cool. It was a great opportunity to be able to meet some folks and also to be a member of the communications and media panel. So huge thanks to the uh, International Association of Wildland Fire organizers who invited me on the panel. Uh, It was a really cool opportunity. So anyway, let's get into our episode. Today we have Amy Christensen, a Métis woman from Northern Alberta. Um, Amy is just an all-star guest. I have wanted to get her on the show for a while now. She runs her own podcast called Good Fire, and I can't emphasize enough how awesome that show is and how you should probably go check it out. Uh, she's also been on the Ologies podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts, uh, so check out her, her episode over there as well if you have a chance especially if you end up liking what you hear on this episode. So um, a little more about Amy. She is a fire social scientist for the Canadian Forest Service. She's done a ton of fantastic research on the connection between Indigenous communities and wildfire and how to bring more good fire into First Nations communities in Canada and has really been one of the most outspoken advocates for greater Indigenous authority over burning on their own lands. She's also done some extensive research on evacuations in First Nations communities as well as wildland fire smoke exposure in these First Nation communities in Canada. And I would highly recommend you go check out her research gate if you're interested in learning more about any of those topics. Uh, She's done some really fantastic work. I cannot express that enough. And we talk a bit about that in this episode. Uh, We also spoke about some of her work in advocating for Indigenous communities And specifically advocating for these communities to have more authority over their own training as well as the amount of fire that they want to be able to put on the ground but are often bureaucratically hindered in doing so. So there's a lot to learn in this episode. I think there's a lot that fire managers from Canada as well as the U.S. can learn from uh, some of the perspectives that Amy has. So I hope you guys enjoy this one. And a huge thank you, of course, to Amy for coming on the show and chatting with me for nearly an hour. So while this episode is a little on the long side for what we normally publish, I would highly encourage you to stick around to the end. She provides some really great insights into kind of how to be a better ally to First Nations and Indigenous communities across North America and kind of what we can be doing, what, what sorts of actionable things we can be doing to support and encourage greater authority for First Nations communities to be able to store it and burn their own ancestral lands and in many ways protect themselves from ever-increasing and more destructive wildfires. One last thing before we get into the episode, I want to thank Mystery Ranch once again for being a sponsor of Life with Fire podcast. They've been very supportive of the podcast since day one. If you're not familiar with Mystery Ranch, uh, they make backpacks in Bozeman, Montana, And their fire packs are second to none, the absolute best packs you can get in the fire space. They now make fire packs with women's yokes as well. So if you are a woman in the fire world and you've struggled with finding a pack that works for you or you've had to swap out the hip belt or the yoke for the smaller yokes and it still maybe doesn't fit you perfectly, then I would highly encourage you to check out Mr. Ranch's new offerings. I will link to their women's packs in this episode's show notes. All right, let's get into it. This is Amy Christensen on Life of Fire podcast. Thank you for listening, and
0: I hope you enjoy this episode. So yeah, um, I'm Amy Cardinal Christensen. I'm a Métis woman from Treaty 8 territory um, in Canada, which is uh, northern Alberta. So my family is the Cardinal and Labakan families from the Fort McMurray and Owl River areas, Um And right now, I live in Treaty 6 in Rocky Mountain House. And I'm also a research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service, um, working mostly on Indigenous fire stewardship. And uh, currently, I'm actually on Interchange to Parks Canada Agency as their Indigenous fire specialist. Um, So yeah, that's um, about it on a background.
1: (laughs) The long and short of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Awesome. How did you you actually find your way
0: into fire into researching fire, especially. Yeah. So I grew up in the, in like the North. um, And so we had lots of fires kind of all the time that I grew up with and kind of just thought that it was a normal thing and didn't really realize, well, I didn't even know that you could do a master's or PhD or anything like that. And also didn't know you could do really fire as a career outside of firefighting. And so I was always interested in kind of hazard management and the, the human side of hazards. And so um, I went and did my undergrad in geologic sciences. And then my um, master's actually in New Zealand on volcanic hazard management with GNS science. And so really there started getting really interested in the, the social science side of, um, of hazards. And then ended up coming back to Canada with uh, Dr. Tara McGee and her research lab and um, just started in, uh, well, I actually, I didn't wanna do fire at first because like I'd grown up with fire. It wasn't very exciting. <laughs> I wanted to do like tsunami research or something like that with indigenous communities. But yeah, just, I guess the the pull of fire was much too strong and ended up doing my PhD working with communities actually right near where I'm from. Um, on wildfire risk and, and um, really started getting more into cultural burning there. And from that um, started, yeah, basically just got interested in indigenous fire stewardship and ended up with this, uh, this career. That's awesome. I would,
1: I would love to know more about like the presence of fire in your youth and as you were growing up, mm-hmm. um, if you were involved in a bit of cultural burning or kind of maybe like the impact wildfire had on
0: you and your community. Sure, yep. So my family was like most, like, uh, especially Métis families in Canada, where we were really disconnected from our culture due to colonization and different, like, rules that were basically imposed on us. So my experience with fire growing up um, was much more just with the the firefighting or fire suppression aspects. So having um, family, um, extended family members that were part of the the wildland firefighting uh, community but then also in our town where I grew up, it was just a small town that was mostly a forestry town at that time. And it was, yeah, it was just, um, there was lots of fires around, I guess. But at the time, I didn't think too much of it. Like smoke was kind of normal in the summer, but it always seemed kind of far away or not impacting communities. And then in 2017, um, my community was actually affected by the Virginia Hills fire that was near Swan Hills, um, Alberta, and it was quite a big fire then, and it was quite scary um, at the time, like there was, you know, that it turned black, and the the, um, sky was, uh, the sun was orange, and there was ash falling everywhere, like snowfall, and even though the fire was about, um, I think it was about 80 kilometers from us, but it was just enough to make you, you know, scared that something was going on, and lots of people in the community were self-evacuating, and so I think that was kind of my first experience with real like the, the bad fire or the scary fire. And then um, we just started having bad fire events in Canada that were much more public. So uh, the Kelowna um, and barrier in uh, 2003, and then we had a uh, 2011 with Slave Lake. Um, and so those were kind of really big events, I think where you just started seeing the impact of fire on people and so when I started getting more into Indigenous fire stewardship was my family were actually trappers um, and bead workers actually from the Fort McMurray area and so they probably would have used fire all all the time like we know from research and stuff that's been done with communities up there that burning for trapping was something that, that was done quite a bit to keep the forest healthy so you know, I don't directly know that they would have used fire, but can guess just from um, exactly the area where they were and, and what they were doing. But when um, fire exclusion um, policies started coming in and, and fire suppression, they really started um, not using that uh, anymore. And so our family kind of lost that connection to fire. But um, with my PhD, I worked with a community called Peavine Métis Settlements. And so I had known about Indigenous use of fire, but it always seemed much more abstract. And I was kind of of that more colonial mindset, I think, that you know that it, people just didn't do it, any, do it anymore. It didn't exist. And so when I went to Peavine at first, that's what they told me, too. Like, oh, no, we don't burn here. But when I started getting closer with the community and finding out I was related to many people in the community you know, people burn all the time. They just don't want to tell anyone (laughs) because they're worried that they're going to get like fined or they're going to like people in some of those communities even went to prison for burning. And so it's a, yeah, people were very nervous about it and about sharing it. And so for me, the, the one constant message that I heard was, you know, using fire to clean that was what they would always talk to me about the elders and it was kind of you know it wasn't the first time I encountered that but the first time that I really heard it over and over again by people and then I started getting more into like the I guess that the policy side like well why can't they do this anymore like it seems like a relatively low risk activity like why can agencies prescribe burn but indigenous communities can't use cultural fire even though it's lower risk like So yeah, I think that that was kind of pushed me into this area and um, Dr. Bonita or Bonnie McFarlane, um, who was my supervisor when I started the Canadian Forest Service, she really saw um, the importance of Indigenous fire and the the really disproportionate risks that Indigenous communities face to fire in Canada. And so she was the one who brought me on there um, and kind of kickstarted, yeah, I guess my career in this area. sorry, long answer. No, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And have you seen a trend? Uh, I, I feel like right recently we've seen this trend towards really trying to give indigenous communities more authority to burn their own ancestral lands. Have you seen that trend in Canada? And can you explain kind of like maybe what that's looked
0: like or, um, where that might be heading? Sure. Yep. So it's, it's been interesting. Like, um, there has been a lot more interest in it and I talk quite a bit on the good fire podcast about it, but I just find that there's such a romanticism with indigenous fire use. So people like to hear about it, like agencies like to say that they support it, but when it actually comes to indigenous people deciding where and when to drop the match and actually doing it, there's a huge disconnect there. So, you know, we really see yeah, so we, we really see support, like you'll see agencies all the time saying we imp- we support Indigenous use of fire, but Indigenous people, I think that that I've worked with really want to be the ones that are leading that. So they want to be the ones who are, you know, using their knowledge of their local landscape to be able to just go out, look in their environment um, about, you know, what needs to be burned, and then go from local cues on when it needs to be burned. They don't want to be, you know, filling out a rigorous, like, burn plan that is based on you know uh, kind of like dominant or western science methods that our, our communities don't use and many people don't have the skills to be able to fill them out you know like what the, the fuel type is, what the FWI is, all these different um, indicators. but you know they know they know those things but in a different way but you can't put that on a, the current prescribed like burn plans. And uh, so I think that that's um, where, yeah, where I'm just seeing that disconnect right now is like the the huge support for it, but just in terms of our nations actually being able to to lead fires. So we have um, different fires that, that have happened that have been cultural burns, but many have had to be in partnerships with agencies where, you know, the agencies will give the final approval and sign off on the burn plan. Like, yeah, sure, we can do, you guys can do it. That's okay with us. And um, so yeah, I've just seen in different meetings where uh, indigenous elders will come forward and just say like, why are we having to ask you for approval of when and where we can burn when you know it's our knowledge um, and our basically what we've learned in our experience with fire that we're putting on the landscape. And you know, some of them have 40, 50, 60 years of you know putting fire on the landscape um, and so the other thing that I'll just mention is um, and I think it's a frustration that many people face with just funding is that we see a lot of one-off projects or one-off burns so you know we'll get money to actually do an Indigenous lead burn but generally it's small and it's um, you know only maybe five acres or something like that and uh, and then it's just a one-off thing. So what Indigenous people, I think, really want to see is much more Indigenous, like, um, landscape-level leadership in fire, and not just kind of these little one-off burns everywhere, because it's not really going to actually make a difference, both in terms of our cultural resources, but also in terms of reducing wildfire risk. And in an
1: ideal world, what kind of steps could you see maybe land agencies, but also tribal, uh, or but also indigenous tribes taking to like when the rubber hits the road, actually getting more fire on the ground, more good fire on the ground.
0: Yeah, sure. So the one thing that we really need here is training and that's not like the Western style of training or certification, but like our, um, we need to be able to learn from the elders in our community about how to use fire. Um, And so that's one thing that I would say that there's been kind of a, not a disconnect, but there's just not the opportunity there to go out and learn from these experienced fire keepers. So that's one thing that we really need. And that is like, we need people basically paid or funded to be able to learn. And so we see that, you know, agencies pay all the time for their staff to go through training. And so we need for Indigenous communities to be able to fund that. But like in Canada, Indigenous um, nations basically receive what we call kind of like a block funding. So they get like just one amount of money and then they kind of have to decide on what they're going to put that to. So, you know, if you decide all of a sudden, like our community is really into cultural burning and we're worried about wildfire, you know, that comes at the expense of other programs in the community. So we really need that kind of outside funding to be able to do that. Um, to get cultural fire on the ground. And there is groups, like there's a group called the Indigenous or the Interior Salish Fire Keepers that are really working at training people to be able to come and learn about fire. So I think that that's like kind of one hopeful thing. And then the other thing that we're doing in Canada that has been done, you know, in California, in Australia, is trying to form some kind of like, like larger groups that can really push policy um, so many of the local nations you know want to burn but they they don't want to spend all the time in the boardroom right like sitting and, and trying to go through policies and different regulations of why they can't burn and okay well how can we change those or influence them so that's one thing that we're like we're forming in Canada National Indigenous Fire Working Group that really hopefully will be able to bring fire keepers and, and knowledge holders from across Canada that can sit down and have some of these like higher level policy discussions so not telling indigenous nations like what to do in their individual territory, but just trying to create the situation where they can do what they want in their territory.
1: That's awesome. Okay, yeah. So I've read a q QA a with you actually it was uh, on the University of Alberta site, and um, you talked about the appropriation of fire knowledge uh, by these land agencies these federal and provincial land agencies and I thought that was really interesting that like you know these the idea of cultural burning really hinges on this traditional ecological knowledge that non-indigenous folks really like can't like fundamentally understand so um, can you just talk a little bit about that um that idea of of maybe the distinction between cultural burning and prescribed burning and like how we can better incorporate like the fundamentals of cultural burning into this like greater movement towards landscape level good fire. Does that make sense? Is that a really long and convoluted (laughs) question?
0: No, perfect. No, it makes sense to me. So we get this, uh, like, I, I get the question a little bit, just about the conflation almost of prescribed fire and cultural fire. And on the good fire podcast, we actually have season two coming up and on there, we have an interview with Ron W. Good. And He um, talks about that and just the difference with cultural burning is that it has culture, it has ceremony it has all these different things involved with it. And so to be able to have that you need to have an indigenous nation, you know that that supports that and has knowledge about that type of work. And I think that that's for me been a hard thing like I'll just be honest about like I've seen a lot of interest now in prescribed fire. But it seems like because prescribed fire fits much better with agency standards, there's a lot more support for it. And I think um, people are really leaning that way, whereas with cultural fire, like many of the things that we want to do, because like, you know, for example, not writing a burn prescription, not wearing PPE or personal protective equipment. know it doesn't fit as easily within the current agency regulated environments and so for me then it starts becoming almost a social justice issue again so okay we're burning we're training up all these people who can go and put fire on our territories but it's not indigenous people you know who are the ones who are again being withheld from being able to participate in land management and so yeah it just for me gets almost like a frustration issue too and so I think, too, so the difference like that I see and I talk about a bit is like the so for prescribed fire, you know, it's it's basically done like there's different ways that you can do prescribed fire, but lots of time in Canada, at least it's almost replicating a crown fire or putting like, you know, fire on the landscape in a big way through trying to burn a lot in a short amount of time. And so for cultural fire, it's, it's much different because you're ma- making it all around cultural objectives and that relationship with the land. And sometimes a prescribed fire can, or a prescribed, or a cultural burn, sorry, can be as small as like one plant, you know, that you really want to promote. Other times it can be, you know, it can be bigger, but I know like talking to different cultural burners, like, you know, even an acre is a pretty big cultural fire. And the other difference, too, is that, you know, it's the time that you do it. So we generally want to burn in times where the fire intensity is very low and stays low, which is different than agency prescribed fire. Um, And then also we want to to be able to have it more of a community activity like we want our kids there. we want our elders there. And I was saying to someone, like, it's like, for me, like, and being on different fire events, it's like just the the whole experience is different, even just the audio, like when you're on a prescribed fire, it's very like, you know, you've got air, sometimes aircraft involved, everyone's on their radios, it feels much more like kind of panicky and urgent a little bit. And then, um, and lots of male voices, I'll just be 100% like talk like, you know, that are kind of on it. But then when you're on a cultural burn like it's like kids laughing it's like elders participating like the fire isn't roaring you know it sounds more like a campfire um and it's just like a much more calming peaceful activity and I I, there was um a man from Australia who I remember hearing him and he, he said that like his family went and put cultural fire back on the landscape for the first time and he said for him it was like he could just feel like how happy like Um, the trees and stuff were because he said it was the first time that they had heard children's laughter in a long time I know and so for me it really puts into perspective like how we've separated children and elders and stuff from the forest and from these type of activities and so for me when we go out like my kids like love to go it's funny like they my daughter is six and she'll just say like oh yeah, we burn in the spring to get the green grass for our deer. Like she already knows that, but she also knows like how dangerous fire can be. And like, I sit and talk to her about it and why, you know, we don't want to play with fire with our friends and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, so this year she came out with us and she like wanted to light the, the fire for the burn. And so, yeah, she lit it and took like a bunch of pictures posing (laughs) like the fire went off and so for me that's more about it because then I can say to her like okay look this this land is unhealthy here like we have a relationship and a responsibility um, that we need to care for this land like this is treaty six my family were signatories on treaty six um in Canada and so for me it's just bringing back that relationship that we've always had there that is incredible. I, have you
1: seen like that sort of reintegration of youth and elders into the broader sort of cultural
0: fire movement? Yeah. And I think that that's, what's so important for indigenous nations, but also why we're having such a conflict with trying to get approval to do it. Like, cause you, I think part of the problem is that there's just this, a lack of understanding. So people have in their head, you know, that we want to go out and set off one of these big controlled, like prescribed fires. And most people in Canada know those because of the, you know, the fires that happen in our mountains here where they set them off and they're, you know, they go like roaring up the kind of the side of the mountain. And so I think that they think that we're crazy wanting to take like our kids and and like have the elders out there and stuff. But for a nation's, that's just, I think a non-negotiable is that it's a more of a family oriented thing. And, but I think that many of the elders that I'm working with, they like really feel sad um, a, that there's not as many youth involved in fire interested in fire and and how we can get that going. So we're hosting some different um, events trying to get youth more involved. But again, it almost comes down to like a, like, I think people can't see themselves working in the career because there is no funding right now um, to be able, you know, to do that. So they get involved in other different activities and uh, and professions instead of, you know, thinking of fire as as a profession but I mean, to our elders, it, it means so much. Like I um, did some work with First Nations Emergency Services Society in British Columbia, and we worked with a community called Hoist or Bridge River First Nation. And one of the elders there, who's actually now passed away, uh, when we were talking about bringing fire back to the land there and, and doing it the old way, he was actually like on an oxygen tank at that time. And he said like, no matter what, like, I want to be there when you burn. And he said into when you bring fire back, like my grandpa did. And I used to watch when I was a boy, he was like, I want to be there to see it return and was like all emotional about it. And it was like, for me, like, and he did get to come out, I think to the one burn that they did in the community. Again, it was a one-off project. I wish for him that we had like much more of a better landscape management plan in that community. We're still working on it, but that just shows like the meaning of fire to many people um, and and elders, just the, I think they look at the forest and they just see it's unhealthy and they're frustrated that they can't do what they know needs to be done.
1: Mm -hmm, Totally. And, and in the realm of like funding and training, do you think that tribal fire management agencies that are like maybe suppression focused, but also have that element of cultural burning, is that like a way to move into that? Is that something that you're that you advocate for or is that a place that you're seeing that improvement or that that transition starting to happen or i don't know yeah
0: i yeah i think that that's a good like a really good place where it could start because you have people who like know fire a little bit so in canada most of our indigenous um people who are involved in fire are involved as seasonal wildland firefighters And so they kind of get in those most of them actually are on these kind of contract crews where they're almost emergency day contracts so they're guaranteed no days they have to hold all the training and then they might get a call out to a fire if it's a bad fire season. But I mean I think what we would all love to see is that that skill would be like throughout the year right so that you would have like some of the thinning and risk reduction occurring and over the winter. And then in the spring, like early spring and late fall, there'd be like a mass cultural burning events. And then you'd have them for firefighting in the summer too, but it's just getting the funding to be able to employ people year round. But I think too, that that would really help build the um, well, first of all, job opportunities for indigenous people, you know, in permanent long-term positions would be amazing. And I think there'd be so many um, indigenous folks because it, it, you know the, the idea of being like in indigenous fire stewardship works so well with like our values um, as communities. So it's yeah, it's I think it would really be a good profession. And again, it's just getting the funny. And I've seen like Bill Tripp and other folks who are involved in this same thing, like just trying to get. There always seems to be money for fire suppression, like when a fire is coming to threaten a community. But we really need to start seeing that proactive money too. And if it was, um, yeah pointed at our nations, that would be fantastic.
1: Yeah. Can you, um, can you actually talk about your podcast a little bit and kind of what you guys have geared up for season two?
0: Sure. Yep. So yeah, we're starting the, the good fire the good fire season two. So The first season actually came about because I was at actually, I think the, uh, lar or no, maybe the fire continuum conference or large wildland fire conference. I can't remember them. It was in Missoula. (laughs) And I listened to somebody, um, talk about a podcast that they had done. They were doing work on fitness with the firefighters and they found like nobody was listening to their academic papers. So they, um, started a podcast that they could reach out to firefighters and just how successful it had been. And so I started thinking, I'm trying to remember though, what the, maybe we I can t- email you after and we can add it to the podcast, the title of that, that podcast, but the, um, oh, I think it was called something on the line. I think it's called on the line is actually the name of the podcast. And so, um, yeah. So then I thought, you know, as a researcher and I keep kind of getting the same questions, you know, from reporters and communities and asked to do guest lectures and I kind of thought well maybe a podcast is a great way to kind of address these things and then also there's so many amazing Indigenous folks worldwide working in this space and just being able to chat with them and record it and as I was saying before like I was totally naive about how difficult a podcast is <laughs> Like I just thought like oh I'll record them and just put it on so I joined up with Matt Christoph, who's the host of Your Forest podcast, who's also like an audio producer. Yeah. And just started interviewing people. And so the first season was really successful. We actually had a lot of interest in it. And um, so, yeah, we came back for season two. So th- um, the first season really focuses on good fire, but kind of uh, there's a lot of academic guests we have on there who are indigenous people. And I mean, it's super interesting, but This time we're focusing a bit more on practitioners who are on the ground, but then also looking at Indigenous fire stewardship isn't just about cultural fire, it's about multiple things, like it's about um, uh, like firefighting, like we were talking about, and um, it's about emergency management, like helping our communities so that they're prepared um, for these wildfire events. And so yeah we have amazing guests like Biami williamson from australia comes on and talks about like the 2020 bushfire season in australia and his testimony to the royal commission there um, we have yeah the honorable ron w good come on um i'm trying to think else. we have um, the authors of an indigenous firefighter study uh come on to um we have a uh, guess from africa natando who's amazing and, and talks about indigenous fire use in africa so I think, yeah, it's going to be an exciting, um, an exciting season. I hope, and I, I hope people find it. I I, I'm so bad on that. It's probably like you, Amanda, I'm like, oh, this episode's awesome. And like, it's like, okay, pretty soon every episode I'm saying it's like awesome, but they all are. I have the
1: same problem. Every time I have a new guest on, I'm like, that was the greatest episode ever. But I say that for every episode. And I like look back and listen to other episodes and I'm like, I can't like, like reasonably say that like every episode, every guest I've had feels just like that. They're bringing such a great amount of nuance to the conversation, to whatever it is that they're most interested in. And I, yeah, every episode I'm like, that was so good. I think that was the best one yet.
0: (laughs) I know that's what we're like too. I'm like doing my intros for them. I'm like, oh, and we have the most awesome guests, (laughs) but I mean, I will say that they all are great. Um, And yeah. So yeah, if anyone's interested, you can find it, I think on all the different podcast platforms and stuff and give it a a listen um the episodes tend to be a little bit long uh but that's just because usually we can't cut them because they're so interesting we're always trying to find spots to cut and it's like oh no let's just leave it
1: my next question was just
0: what you're excited for right now yeah well I mean I'm excited or nervous I don't know (laughs) Um, so I think you know there's been such amazing um, things that are happening internationally so like the Fire Sticks Alliance in Australia and how they're um, certifying cultural burners now um, and, and that program that they're doing and we actually on the Good Fire podcast to plug it again talk about that program with Victor Stephenson um, and then like the, the stuff in California with the recent legislative changes and things like that's amazing too so those things like I'm excited about because you know, now when we're we're moving forward in Canada, when we come up against these different things, we're like, oh, well, what about liability? What about this? We can say like, well, here's how they handled it in California. Here's what they're doing here. So for me, it's really exciting, like that we don't have to reinvent the wheel on all this. Like, let's just, um, yeah, like, copy or borrow from what other jurisdictions are doing. Uh, so I think that's one exciting thing where I can see that we could make a bunch of progress in quite a quick time. And I mean the the nations too for me here are always just so impressive like they want to burn in despite like all that they've experienced in the last like 80 to 100 years just how strong they are and just like proud of their culture and like willing to kind of now fight about getting fire back on the ground on the way that they want to me is just always inspirational um yeah I love love that about them but I mean I'm all, I'm also anxious like about the upcoming fire season and Um, Last year in Canada, we had, um, I think, 217 wildfire evacuations, our previous high was in 2018, when we had 102. So like we doubled it. And I mean, it was lots of, um, you know, communities that were infected lots of indigenous communities, and we've had numerous close calls, too. And so that's, I think, like last year was our first direct fire um, wildfire fatalities too in Lytton, where two people were lost. So I think, yeah, that makes me anxious about like what's coming up because really in the off season, you know, there hasn't been like a ton of work that's been done because, you know, sometimes government can be slow. And so, yeah, what does this season have? And so, although I will say that 2020 um, there was really, we had almost no fires. <laughs> so it was, yeah, I should think more positive. Maybe it won't be as bad of a season as last year. So Yeah, I'm feeling anxious and and apprehensive about kind of what's to come, but at the same time excited about potential for Indigenous people um, Yeah, really being involved in this. And so we also have in the fall, the Wildland Fire Canada conference coming up and we're going to be hosting a, a workshop, an Indigenous fire workshop at Elk Island National Park. And so I'm really excited about that too, Um, just to be able to kind of showcase Indigenous fire. Like at many conferences, like Indigenous people are invited to the conference, but it's usually like to perform. And so what I'm really trying to do now, I'm involved. um, I'm, I'm a board member now with the International Association of Wildland Fire and Um, with these conferences I'm really trying to have it so you know Indigenous um, knowledge and diversity and other things are throughout the conference so not just in special sessions um, but or you know like a special panel on being diverse or something but rather like every panel is diverse like everything Indigenous knowledge is represented in and so I think with the Wildland Fair Canada we're really pushing for that and Yeah, we have two elders that are actually involved in that conference that have been advising it. And um, so, yeah, I think that that's a really exciting thing, too. And everybody's welcome, no matter where you are. We, yeah, Americans can come. It's even though it's called Wildland Fair Canada, it's not just about us, Um, but it's in Edmonton, actually. So in Treaty 6 territory where I'm from. I wanted to bring it back to the
1: community, the indigenous communities that were impacted last summer. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. have you seen movement towards, um, or have you been involved in more mitigation efforts in a lot of those communities? Are you seeing that trend happening a little bit?
0: Yeah. So I think there's, um, yeah, there's a, definitely a trend that, you know, we need more mitigation and, Um, There's been more funding that way. And so I think that that's been exciting. Again, it's just like trying to get that on the ground, trying to get the, you know, practitioners and contractors working and, you know, procurement and all those fun government things going. Um, So there has been a change. Like, again, I'd like to see it um, in the nations that I work in more as, uh, you know, like kind of like 10 year plans or, you know, long term landscape level planning Right now we do get a lot of the kind of the one off project funding, um, so you know, to go and do a fuel treatment somewhere. Um, but lots of times there's not money for maintaining that as you know vegetation grows <laughs> and then or there there's not money for other things like around the the community, right? like in order to be able to tackle and live with fire, we need to do what indigenous communities in Canada have done, which is really this landscape level um like maintenance of the, of the forest so that we can live in it. Yeah, so I think that that's that's exciting. I mean, the one thing is like Indigenous communities are really disproportionately impacted by fire. Like we only make up about 5% of the population of Canada, if that, many of those Indigenous folks actually live in urban centres, so don't experience wildfires directly. But we make up about 43% of the wildfire evacuees in Canada because it's many of our northern um, communities, many like there's so many indigenous communities throughout the boreal forest uh, that are really impacted every year by fire but are really kept out of wildfire decision making so lots of times they either have to wait for funding to come down to them or they have to you know fill out forms to be able to access funding and as i spoke about before many communities just don't have the capacity to do that they're like and i want to say the funded capacity so they have people that could do that but you know they're dealing with other issues and know we still don't have clean drinking water in many communities we don't have like that housing is a huge problem overcrowded housing and and things like um there's issues with like um the provinces and like child welfare and trying to get children raised in our own communities and so there's just so many different things going on in communities so when you talk about wildfire it always just seems like you know well we can wait on that right there's many more pressing issues so Yeah, it'd be nice like I said if we could get some funding for people to be able to fill out those applications to access those funds.
1: Yeah, that kind of rolls into my next question, possibly my last question. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of a hard one to ask I you can answer it to whatever extent you'd like to but I'm curious like how you perceive how, how you would recommend non indigenous folks. Uh, can be like this like a stronger ally towards empowering tribes to take greater authority or have greater authority over their landscapes and over those that traditional ecological knowledge. like how can non-indigenous fire managers and practitioners be allies in in this space?
0: yeah, so i like it's always a bit of a difficult one just because like being indigenous and in the community like I'm just not not totally sure, but then at the same time, like I know um like Mary Huffman with the Nature Conservancy does, has done an amazing job. So she actually hosts kind of these groups where she brings together people who want to be allies to Indigenous people and in FIRE. And they like meet and talk about things that they can do and other things because like there's such a fine line, I think, for many Indigenous people like myself between, you know, like allyship and appropriation <laughs> where, you know, like people kind of just want to step in and, and take over. And so I hear a lot of, Folks like just you know oh I you know I love cultural burning and you know it's so important we need to do that who can I learn from like but it's like okay hey, well that's not the thing like you should be supporting our nation so that we like the people who exist in that nation can learn from one another um, so to me that should be more the role of, of the ally there is like ensuring that Indigenous communities are supported in wildfire and can learn you know learn from one another so that might be like you know organizing workshops like where elders can teach youth Um, so instead of like you know organizing a workshop for yourself to learn or something like that it's more for the community to learn from one another and then like you know for agency people it's talking like I think many on the ground folks are really supportive of Indigenous people and and being more involved in fire management and it's generally like in the nations that I work with their frustrations come from like the higher levels (laughs) and so you know it's it's almost using your position or your employment to be able to influence kind of those higher things well why aren't we working with communities why aren't why are we just funding one-off projects all the time how when can we try to support doing you know these longer term things or giving more blanket or bulk funding to nations and so i think for me that that's kind of the the role there and you know attend just even learning about cultural fire too and not so much like the practice and the techniques, but just why it's so important to Indigenous people and why it's such a a vital part of our nations. Um, Like I always say, like for us, it's not just about fire, right? It's about everything, like getting people back on the landscape, learning like, okay, well, You know we we use fire for this berry okay well why does do we need that berry like what do we use that berry for what medicinal properties does it have what ceremonial ceremonial properties does it have so those are the things that you know I think for uh allies and things it's more just supporting us to be able to get out and do those practices which I mean I know doesn't sound as as exciting but yeah I've just seen so many things come through my inbox like oh I want to come and learn from your elders and it's like well yeah, yeah I know <laughs> it's like um well you know what? you can support us in different ways I think like the first people that should be learning from our elders are the youth and other community members who are in that community and you know elders time is limited um so yeah anyway so that's just like one one thing there and I think too like just supporting too that things are indigenous led so even like within agencies when you see like you know, okay, we're going to support cultural burning and do a cultural burning program, like really asking questions like, okay, well, what Indigenous people are involved in this? Who's leading this? Like, I've seen cultural fire programs that don't have one Indigenous person in them in agencies. And so like huge red flag and someone, an ally should be stepping up there and saying like, you know, hey, wait, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe this isn't the way that, that we should do this. Because like I said before, for me, like, sure prescribed fire is similar technically an agency could come and learn our techniques and and apply them to the ground and they might have the same impact on the landscape but it won't have the same impact on culture or on communities and that's really where the incorporation of indigenous people is vital in this area and as i said it comes down to really a social justice issue for me that's fantastic thank
1: you so much for for that wonderful answer it's really hard to ask you know to ask folks how would it be a better ally like that's a yeah. that's a really loaded and hard question and something that like we should be doing the work to answer but i just i wanted to get your perspective on it just to like in terms of maybe what you've seen that has worked and and you you perfectly answered that in terms of like you know what uh, what's actually happening on the ground and what's actually working and who who's doing that work.
0: So yeah, I appreciate it's an, that. Yeah, no problem. And it's an important question because I think, like I said, with that romanticism aspect, people like just hear likes the Good Fire podcast, and that's one thing I didn't think of with the podcast and putting it out there is that it would generate a lot of interest in this. I thought of it more as like, oh, an educational tool for universities to use or things like that. Not that you know people would kind of stumble across it and get like really excited about cultural fire, which is great. But like I said, there's still like, we've actually just put out a teaser episode on good fire about like what people can do as allies. Um, Or, you know, we talk about like the treks and the local prescribed fire councils and getting involved in, in that way in supporting indigenous people too.
1: All right. That's what we've got for you today. A huge thanks again to Amy Christensen for coming on the show and sharing so many spectacular insights and perspectives from Uh, Canada and from her work with indigenous communities up there I would encourage you guys to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already you can also check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us in that way we also love to get reviews if that is something that you're interested in doing. Um, Reviews on Apple Podcasts really help with the algorithm and help get the podcast in front of more folks so I would love it if you guys were able to do that, any of those things, or maybe just simply share it with somebody who might also like this episode. I'd also like to remind you once again to check out the Good Fire podcast that Amy Christensen co-hosts. It's a fantastic resource for learning more about Indigenous burning across the world. So I will link to the Good Fire podcast in this episode's show notes. Go check it out if you get a chance. And thank you, as always, for listening. We will catch you on the next one.